Ordinary Voices is sponsored by RCL Worship Resources. RCL Worship Resources is creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Their team of gifted writers and editors are creating worship planning materials to support congregations and leaders. Visit RCL Worship Resources to see their broad spectrum of resources. They're here to make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. RCLWorshipResources.com. Worship that works for you. I think a lot of people that don't like soccer don't know the game enough to know tactically what's happening. One, there was there was a game that we went to. I think the Loons outshot the other team like thirty to eight, and they just had they just missed over and over, just putting in the empty net. They just couldn't put it in there, and the other team on a free header put one in at the end, and they lost one nothing. It was when you think of the size of the goal, yeah, for soccer compared to lacrosse compared to hockey compared to other sports you're like how can people not score more (laughs) (laughs) the thing is so large this is ordinary voices inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith i'm your host eric elkin I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen for the extraordinary stories dwelling with inside every ordinary voice. Guests on this show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, A Teacher's View. My guest today is Alex, a high school teacher and coach at Eastview High School in Apple Valley, Minnesota, a third ring suburb of Minneapolis. He is married, has two young children, and has been teaching for nine years. Today, Alex teaches high school English, is the assistant varsity boys soccer coach, and head coach of the ninth grade B boys basketball team and girls varsity golf. He is the kind of teacher who is deeply engaged beyond the classroom. We spoke in August 2018 because I wanted to know what was going through a teacher's head as he prepared to return to school after summer off. No offense to Alex, but his description was far less fascinating than I thought it would be. What was fascinating was the view he gave of a classroom and the way that view was processed through the mind of a teacher. Listening back over the recording of our conversation, I must have been wanting to push Alex into a more reflective and sharing level. I don't know, because my first question about teaching seems so negative. So what was your, what was your, most, your most difficult year? Uh, the group that I will have this year is seniors, as when they were freshmen. Okay. 
I had probably 12 of the most difficult kids in the school. And of those, I want to say nine of them are at an area learning center or some sort of emotional behavioral school because they couldn't function in a normal classroom. But we had probably 10 cell phones stolen. Someone took lotion and poured them all over all the computers. I got called the N-word twice by a white boy and had him back in class the same day by the end of class. Take that year out, and I have probably sent a kid to the principal's office a total of four times, maybe, okay. out of the, this will be my ninth year teaching, so out of those eight years before, maybe once every other year. Right. That year, I probably 15 to 20 times had to send kids down, and my policy is if the other kid's learning experience is being hindered, then that needs to be removed. I, I can deal with a kid not doing work right. or just being rude, but some kid's literally standing up in the middle of class and swearing at me or yelling at another kid in class and just having to have them forcefully removed. I've never seen the like in the last two years. I've been fine. And I even had that group last year as juniors, and they were significantly better. I mean, the maturity that happens, but also if you remove some of those kids and from the classroom, it helps, but you also at the same time, it's tough because you look at all those kids that are having those issues. There wasn't a single one that had a family life that you would be really looking forward to going home. And so it's not like these kids don't have a whole lot on their plate. Right. But at the same time, where does their distraction hinder all the other students? Right. And that's kind of where to find the balance. And I wasn't my best that year because of it. Truthfully, I believe you learn more about a person hearing them talk about their toughest experiences rather than their best. In describing his most difficult year, we hear why Alex is a good teacher. His compassion and concerns extends to both the type of students we would classify as good and those most consider bad. It is simple to just blame it on children, but wisdom is knowing when you're contributing to the problem. So I wanted to follow up with the statement, I wasn't my best that year. How would you say? Teaching? In teaching. So one thing I'm really good at, one of my, I think, my gifts that God gave me is I'm able to build rapport with students. That year was one of the hardest years I've ever had doing that just because so much resistance. Every other year you build those relationships and you might have a bad day. Mm Mm-hmm. But you can go back the next day knowing it's a brand new day. Those kids aren't like that. I got to the point where I dreaded going to school. And it didn't help that it was 6th and 7th hours for the last two class periods of the day. I know going into that group, and it was just a handful of kids, but I was going in expecting a fight. Not a physical fight, but just expecting a battle. A battle. And so you could have a great kid that asks a question that just seems obvious to you, but you're on edge. And almost feeds the kids they know they're getting to you, right? Yeah, and it's... But then when you do that to the kids that haven't done anything wrong, thinking about these students, one, their brain hasn't developed. (laughs) You you can't ask them 
to be what they're not. And I got to the point where I was asking them to do things that they just weren't capable of doing. Right. But also let them to remind myself that I am letting them have control of my emotions in my classroom and I'm giving it to them. Right. Because I am letting what they might do impact every aspect of my teaching. Most likely the other classes that you had too. Correct. Yeah. About halfway through the year is when I think I just started really, why is this happening? I kept a pretty positive attitude. And then fourth quarter, I went to a training with some other leader teachers at the school and kind of changed my perspective, which helped. So it took took going to a training to kind of... Yeah, and it was actually a training for coaches and leaders. Like it was, they said, hey, you'd be great at this. Kids love you. You're a great teacher. I'm like, you know, like the worst teacher ever. And they're telling me, hey, we want to get you some extra training. And yeah. so I went to this top 20 training, and it readjusted the way I was looking at what I was doing. So what lesson did you learn from that experience? It, it really was not give the power to other people. So one of their lines is keep your day. Stuff is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Are you going to let that make the rest of your day miserable? Or are you going to say, this is out of my control because a kid having a mom that is an alcoholic and a drug abuser that's never home and treats her son like garbage, Mm -hmm. having him come to school and not be the best in class, I have no control over that. I can try and help him, lead him to places where he can get help, Mm -hmm. but I can't change his behavior. So why let his behavior Impact how I'm treating everybody else. And think about it, it's not even change the behavior. You can't change the circumstances. There's very, very few kids out there that are tough kids to have in class that don't have something going on in their life. Right. right. They need help with something. At one point in Alex's life, he considered becoming a minister. An uncle, who once himself considered becoming a pastor, talked him out of it. He told Alex there are a bunch of ways one can minister in daily life without becoming a pastor. Keep your day is a prime example. I think at its core is Jesus' repeated lessons about worrying. All people who decide to serve others, whether from a pulpit or in a classroom, need to embrace this lesson Alex learned. Know the boundaries of your ability to change or influence someone else's life. Ministering to the needs of others does not mean taking away everything bad, It is about equipping them with the tools to manage their own life and then encouraging them to make necessary changes. So let's hear the other side of difficult. But tell me one of your better years. Um, every other year is... I'm I'm not joking. Like, I love my job. I would say maybe my third year. We actually won the state soccer, state soccer tournament. Really? Yeah. So it was my first year as the varsity oh, you can't assistant. Oh, varsity. Or my second year. Second year as a varsity assistant. And it wasn't just sports. Like, I'm a teacher first and I coach second. When you have those things happening at a school, the way it shapes the school and brings the school together is remarkable. The unity that a sport can bring when you have success and... Soccer, high school soccer has maybe 100 fans right. at a game, and 80 of those are parents. parents. Right. Yeah. right? 
we had probably three, four hundred fans at a game for those two years because we were so good and people got behind it. And in the hallway, the respect that you saw and the excitement you saw from that was unbelievable. Boys bat, baseball team one stayed the same. I mean, we just had a Holy lot of cow. success yeah. there, which added to that. But then you also see in the classroom, all the kids are more engaged in their education because they want to be. It's more than just right. going for English and math. It's something that they want to be a part of, and it's hard to replicate that. How do you get the kids engaged in their learning? There's a lot of different ways to do it. And one thing that I saw was if you have the kids buying into the school and the celebration and just being part of something bigger, it was pretty remarkable. Alex's reaction to my question about what was one of his better years is important and should not go unnoticed. When he said every other year, I thought it funny, but his response is quick. His tone is serious, and he's almost angry with me for laughing. Alex loves his job, and he loves working with children. As we move into the next stages of the conversation, you'll need to remember that. Alex loves his job, and any reflection on negative aspects of it are spoken out of a compassion and a desire to help children in need, whatever that need may be. His observation on school spirit as a form of community building, which encourages learning, is the most compelling argument I've ever heard about keeping sports connected to a school. And I've seen even just recently the school spirit declining just across the spectrum. It's even happened at Eastfield. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, just like not going to sporting events or not caring or... Yeah, just... like the foot... Unfortunately, like football games seem to be more about how many kids are drunk. You go and you don't really hear cheers. It's just they're going there because that's what you do on a Friday night, and so many of them are there just to drink. Really? Big alcohol problem? Or just just Huge. Huge. Alcohol is a huge... Not as bad as vaping right now. Vaping is hands down, I think, the worst. Because kids are doing it during school. Really? Oh yeah, they have those now, those ones that look, the jewels that look like flash drives. Oh, really? Yep. So, so small little things that they go in. So I'll be, uh, I'll be completely ignorant here. I don't even know what vaping is. <clears throat> so it's a nicotine shot without the cigarette. So okay. it's, it's an electric thing that just does, shoots does, a puff of tobacco. I mean, different kind, but it, then you just inhale it, yeah. But it doesn't get you high or anything, it just... It has nicotine, so it's... It gives you a buzz. It gives you a buzz. Okay. I sit there and I think about uh, a company intentionally doing something to market... Well, it, and here's the funny thing. They had a huge Supreme Court, I want to say, California Supreme Court. Some state brought it to the Supreme Court. It was, why are you... Why? They said, we're not marketing. We're making it so it doesn't seem... So those trying to quit smoking, it doesn't seem like this big honking thing. I have a hard time just knowing the history of the tobacco industry, thinking that <laughs> it's that, <innocent. laughs> that that maybe part of it is 
and I, and I would I would really like to believe that maybe when they were started it was to quit smoking because you can still make a ton of money having these things to help people quit smoking but developing things that can be so easily hidden In November 1998, the attorneys general of 46 states and four of the largest tobacco companies reached an agreement to settle the state cases against the tobacco industry. The terms of the settlement, referred to as the Master Settlement Agreement, included these two provisions. Tobacco companies agreed to refrain from engaging in ad campaigns that marketed cigarettes towards children. They also agreed to fund the National Public Education Foundation to reduce youth smoking and to prevent diseases associated with it through education. So what happens? We get rid of the tobacco and keep the nicotine, which is the one thing that makes the product addictive. The tobacco industry is the dark side of capitalism. Their mission is to make money, not protect life. However, it makes me sad to think of our own free will our children are knowingly and willingly taking a product that is addictive and destructive to their life. How does that get in the way of their learning? If you look at the larger spectrum about drug use and the impact that it has on learning, that's where it becomes the problem. Okay. All the research that's been coming out that the people who are smoking, oftentimes it's actually medication they don't even realize it, but it's medication for themselves because they want to, it just makes it easier for them to deal with the life the way that it is. And it's also socioeconomic gap as well, those that are smoking. Of the high school age group, it tends to be a cheaper thing than some of the other things. And so they're doing it and that nicotine is having a, such a drastic impact on their brain. So, so it's almost like... Um an unhealthy anxiety medication. Correct. Wow. It, it impacts it, and changes the complete chemistry of their brain as well if they're doing it before their brain is developed. Right. And their brains aren't done developed until their mid to late 20s. Right. Like their frontal cortex is still being developed, and the studies are showing that nicotine and these some of these other drugs are impacting the way their brain is growing and functioning, which then is causing... See, and I didn't think, I didn't realize that those vaping things were nicotine. I oh, yeah. thought they were just smokeless cigarettes kind of thing, that they had taken out the nicotine, but that's not the case. There are some that I think are just, gives you the puff of air, but they're tobacco-based products. Huh. Wow. The drinking? We're getting in, like, gray area about the whole political thing about how much we be impacting people's decisions in life. And again, I'll say, as long as their brain hasn't developed where they can be making those decisions, it's a very gray, murky area. But the biggest thing with alcohol and drinking alcohol is the impact that it's having on their brain, but also why are the kids doing it? You're having kids that are self-medicating for depression, by getting drunk. Right. You talk to a lot of kids that are depressed. What do they do on a Wednesday night? They get drunk by themselves. Right. And they haven't learned how to do that or to drink socially even in the proper environment. And then right. you have binge drinking with kids dying. And, and I still think that, um, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying this, that uh, 
alcohol does actually more damage to the body than any other drug. Well, again, studies that show if you're drinking and smoking before you're 18, the chances that you will have issues increase. I can't remember by how many percent, but there's a... Right. The earlier you're doing it, the more and more likelihood to have depression, anxiety, alcoholism, or just addictive stuff. It's happening because your brain, that's what it's Hmm. teaching it to deal with all these other stressors. A teacher's view is really important and informative. That Alex is a coach as well increases the authenticity of this view. He is with children almost two-thirds of their year in and out of the classroom. And more importantly, he is with children away from their parents or home environment. Those of us who stand outside this realm only get snapshots of what is taking place in a child's mind and life. This does not mean a parent's view is less authentic, but parents are hampered by two things. More often than we care to admit, we see what we want to see in our children, and children act differently away from their parents. Drinking and smoking have always been a high school thing. In years gone by, it was an act of defiance or a desire to be mature. It is different today. Drinking and smoking are forms of self-medication. I wanted to help anyone become healthier, physically or mentally, I would focus on the need for medication and not the product used. This is a good segue into the next thing most of us think about when seeking to understand a teacher's view. Are the problems with parents really as bad as we hear? How is your uh, interaction with parents? I mean, so you get, because you get a couple ways you can go in that. You can go in the coaching aspect with parents, and you can go in the teaching aspect to your parents. Our athletic director, our school is amazing. The head coaches are really good, and we have the policy parents, you don't talk to coaches unless you've talked to the kid and the kid has talked to the coach. Across the board, that is the message that's being received, including from the AD. So, parent goes to a coach and says, hey, I want to know why my kid isn't playing. Say, their response is supposed to be, well, talk to your kid and have them talk to me because we might have already had that conversation. So Mm -hmm. talk to your kid first, and if they're having an issue, come talk to me. Because how many times does it happen where he knows exactly why he's not playing because he was late to practice or he just knows, I don't know how to do this, so I can't go in and do this. And so they... Oftentimes those conversations have happened, just the parent getting upset. It helps with the culture of the program to have that. Mm-hmm. You're still going to have angry parents. Right. And I teach, I coach 9B basketball, so the lowest of the low. That might be the easiest in terms of parents because it's not about winning. And what I was told by the head coach is get the kids playing time. And we're still going to go for the win, but every single kid's going to get to play. Right. Varsity soccer, we're carrying 22 kids. Not everybody's playing every game. Right. Usually, if you tell the parent to have that conversation with the kid, it goes away. Yeah. And the parents are, they might not be happy, but at least yeah. they understand. Right. But every parent thinks their kid deserves more than they're getting. And I am not looking forward to the time when my kids are in high school and if they love something to have, to realize that, Am I going to be strong enough to realize that maybe they're not as good as those other players? Right. 
In junior high, Alex realized he did not have the physical tools to compete in the sport he loved, hockey. So he chose another sport, soccer. I wondered as I was listening to him, who made that decision? So now Alex is worried about how he will respond to the same situation if it happens to one of his boys. My uninvited advice to Alex and anyone else listening, let your children decide. If they decide wrong, if that's even possible, they'll still learn from it. Let's take a commercial break. Ordinary Voices is about listening to the thoughts of ordinary people in hopes we can build a better understanding of ourselves and each other. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in hearing more Ordinary Voices, go to the website, ordinaryvoices.org. That's ordinaryvoices.org. Past shows are available on every format where podcasts are available. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you just want something to read, sign up to receive the devotions on the website OrdinaryVoices.org. The devotions are turned into short prayer podcasts to help busy people find time to pray and reflect. Ordinary Voices is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it on the website OrdinaryVoices.org. Anyone who commits to $10 a month, that is $120 a year for 2019, will receive a beautiful set of greeting cards, uniquely designed from nature photos. Support Ordinary Voices now to receive your gift. Also, check out RCL Worship Resources, creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Visit rclworshipresources.com and make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. rclworshipresources.com, worship that works for you. Now let us return to Alex as I ask him about dealing with parents on the teaching side of things. When it comes to teaching, though, that aspect of parents, how's that been? Pretty good. I'm pretty good with most parents. Conferences, it's usually 75% of the parents are there to hear how great their kid is because their kid has an A. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of the kids that you wish their parent would get there because you are having issues, they're the ones that don't show up. But you will have a few parents, and those are usually the hard conversations because they have a completely different experience. They have, they've been with them for 14 years as freshmen, whatever, 16, 18 years. So you have their background knowledge about what their kid is capable of and then what you're seeing in class. And if that doesn't match what's going on at home, that's usually where you have the issues with mm-hmm. parents because they're like, well, they're not like that at home. And again, it's as a parent, you're not in the classroom, so you don't see it. And so all you can go off of is the knowledge that you're hearing or the knowledge that you have of your child at home or what other teachers are saying. Right. Some of those conversations have been really hard. Never had a parent, though, that just has chewed me out in terms of what I'm doing. Most of them... I think try to be respectful and responsible and know that I have the best interest of the student at heart. Right. And usually if it's there is an issue, it's a miscommunication. Like one time I told uh, this girl, I said, just so you know, right now you have an F in my class because you haven't turned these things in. So this weekend, why don't you work on those things? So if you turn them all in, you're going to be passing, doing great. She went home and told her mom, Mr. Curry called me a failure and said, I can't pass this class. 
so I had an email from her that was also attached to my administrators and my bot like all my bosses saying how can you dare do this my kid is supposed to go on a mission trip with church and doesn't want to go on the mission trip because she feels like a failure in your eyes and like that it doesn't happen often I think it's happened once or twice right ever where it's been that bad but it's usually it comes down to miscommunication yeah. most of the time parents are pretty respectful about hey this is what they're saying what happened she was one of one or two times that has been a quick jump quick jump and then ask for forgiveness later okay. and she was begging for forgiveness later because we sat down with my administrator my boss the student and myself and we can you just tell me what you heard me say and she said exactly what i had said and the mom said, that's not what you told me you said. And so, like, she immediately had that look of, what have I done on her the face? Mother. The mother did. Man, you really do need to, to check with the doctor. Really here. need to check. <laughs> Just and to make sure. Done it. I've done, I said yeah. stuff to people. I was like, I really should have asked them right. about this situation before I just right. attacked them yeah. with what I heard from someone else. Right. You do it, yeah, like you do it as an adult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have the students that make up lies to get out of trouble, and then those lies are found out. <laughs> those are always fun, but again, there are so many positives that outweigh all of those negatives. Yeah. It is comforting to know that Alex's experiences are positive, but there is something all parents need to know. Children don't lie. They just marinate the truth to their own advantage. Every once in a while, they need to be called out on it. And here's the thing. You were the same way at that age, and so were your parents. If there's nothing you have learned from social media, learn this. People always jump to conclusions before asking clarifying questions. We all do it. And it'll go a long way towards understanding not to. got those parents that are engaged but you got a lot of parents that aren't engaged or, or maybe so not a lot. yeah and I teach what we call on level so what a lot of schools call like regular mm-hmm. on level I teach all on level classes helicopter parents are usually in the AP honors world where mm-hmm. the expectations are higher mm-hmm. and so that also if I wasn't solely AP teacher I hear stories from some of my colleagues about awful parent conferences about I worked on this paper with them and I crossed every T. Why did they get this grade? And some of my colleagues saying, well, did you write this paper? And is that why you are upset? Because you got a B on this paper? They don't actually have that cop. But I mean, so there is that. I just don't have that as much because a lot of the kids up on level, they either want to know why they're there because they didn't want to be in that. And I have some kids that could easily manage there, but they just want, they are doing four or five after-school activities. They want to be able to do those and not have to worry about three hours of homework at night. And I want to say 30% of my population is going to have parents who won't show up that should show up. Right. Right. So I see more of that spectrum than the helicopter parents right right and i don't know which is better which is worse like 
it's nice to have parents that are involved, but I also hear nightmares about that. And again, most of my experiences with parents have been really good. Really good, yeah. So they take the bottom like 5% and put together, 5 10% and put together a writing class mm -hmm. just for seniors. Like I've taught that, like it's a completely different ball game teaching those kids than even on level it like you said it's what is the hook what is the thing that you can get them to buy into right. or who is going to who are they going to be accountable to because if they don't have that then there's it's going to be tough <laughs> yeah real tough because not I, I i mean those kids have made a million trips to the principal's office they know that game they do <laughs> that game. That's not good. That's not going to affect any change whatsoever. Sometimes yeah. that's what they want. Alex teaches in a third ring suburb, 27 miles outside of downtown Minneapolis. I bet that most people would assume this community would be predominantly white, middle to upper middle class, and more rural than urban. Alex is about to introduce us to one of the most significant changes in American culture. It is taking place across the country in every suburban and rural community. The face of America is changing, and so is its economic vitality. This change is happening faster than anyone ever conceived possible. How would you describe your school system? You're not in a low-income school system. No, we're one of the faster changing demographic wise in South East Metro in terms of minority and in terms of um, socioeconomic and free and reduced lunch, but we're still, I mean, people still call Eastview cake eaters, even though that has changed significantly. When we first opened, we were 6% minority and we're up to, I want to say close to 35 to 40 percent and then free and reduced is just slightly above that but they're saying by 2024 minority population is going to be larger than white population and there's going to be more kids on free and reduced than not on free and reduced so it's a ever changing i think one thing our administration does is focusing on that not to say they can't learn but to change the way we're addressing our culture and the way we're teaching because not everybody learns the same. How does something like that look changing the culture of how you teach? Um, being very conscious about where other cultures are coming from. How can you make people feel inclusive? Because a lot of education system we have was developed for middle to upper class white people that had family with parents that were going to sit down with them every single night to home. Like you just had a very homogenous group of people that Right. could learn, and people would even say, well, they, they still weren't learning to the best of their ability. Right. And so it's changing the way we're learning to be more, trying to focus more on learning instead of teaching. So I'm not up there just giving information. It's having the kids learn and trying to individualize learning a lot more in terms of, so if we do a writing unit, I'm giving them the assignment, helping them with the basics, and then... Some kids are struggling with the basics. I'm helping them get that stuff. As other kids are better with that, I'm giving them lessons that are helping them get to the next level, and the next level, and the next level. So we have some kids are getting high-level writing skills in terms of voice and sentence structure and fluency and everything else, which is a higher level 
writing skill. Mm -hmm. And other kids I'm working with just getting their thoughts on on paper because they're not very good at that. And so that's a model that we're trying to move more towards, at least in the English right. world, is knowing that kids are not coming to us at the same level. Right. They have different experiences, different abilities, different cultural that, things they're writing about and trying to... Does that, in that approach, do you kind of um, try to push to where kids are allowed to excel at their own pace? That's the goal. Um, it's hard, it's challenging at times. I have 38 kids in a class. So to try and manage those kids that are not just the I can't, the, their struggle, but they're also the I won't, they hate everything dealing with English or school. So like I have, let's say, five of those kids in my class. I can't sp spend my entire class with those five kids. How can I keep them motivated to keep working while I'm helping different groups? And that's been the biggest challenge I have is getting those kids to keep pushing themselves. Right. And then the other aspect is how can I get those high flyers to keep pushing them to get better as well? Because some of them, they come into my class and... They already know most of what you're talking. What I'm talking about, and so I can give them the stuff. But then they're freshmen. What freshman is saying? Yeah, I want to. I want to. Can you give me five more lessons on how to do this better? <laughs> I feel like you're not challenging me enough. <laughs> Especially in English. It's English is uh, still a, most of the kids don't come in loving English. Some of them love reading, but not many kids love writing. A couple of notes of interest. The first is critically true. Increases in both racial diversity and enrollments in free and reduced lunches does not mean that minorities are making the district poorer. The last presidential election shined a light on a problem few politicians were addressing, the growing number of poor in the white working class. Second, those who adapt to change thrive. Those who refuse will struggle. This is not a new phenomenon. It is part of the U.S. narrative since European settlement of North America. Third, just think about the challenge to individualize learning when a classroom has 38 children. If you've ever worked with children, you know what a challenge that is. That's some radical diversity into a community. I mean, that's all kind of... You were talking about, was it 6%? Um, minority to 40% in that general Just like, area. Yeah, 35, 40, yeah. yeah. In how many years? Is it 20? It's been 20. We're just, yeah. So, and again, it's, we're rapidly increasing. For the first five or six years, there was no change, really. And then it's just changed. We, we do pretty well numbers for, and like for all the different tests, including AP and honors. We're usually ranked pretty high. And I'm not just trying to toot the horn of Eastview, but what it's done is it created a culture where people want to come. So next year, we were supposed to have less than 500 freshmen. We have 640. So we have that many kids open enrolled wanting to come to Eastview. So we're going to have 2,200 2, kids, 2,300, somewhere in there. And about a third of those are going to be open enrolled. Wow. So kids that are hearing about what's going on at Eastview, parents and wanting to go there. And our sports are good, but not many of them are good enough to transfer for a sport. Right. 
a lot of the kids are transferring because of the academic opportunity, and then there's also the handful that their parents are saying, I want their my kid out of the situation they have at their school to go somewhere new that has a good reputation. And so we have a huge influx of... So do they set a ceiling on the open enrollment, or is that... that we have a huge debate going on in our district, and it's happened a lot of district. Should you close open enrollment? Because a lot of who we're taken from is Apple Valley, the high school, another high school in the district. Apple Valley's really been struggling. When they started to change diversity and socioeconomic status, their administration wasn't as proactive. Again, I mean, I can't look in the future and see where ECU's going to be in 10 years from now. Right. But from what I heard from people that worked at Apple Valley, they didn't have anything in place or any conversations happening about how are we going to handle the changes that are happening. We're trying to figure that out. And we have had a huge change in diversity, and we're still keeping relatively close to the same uh-huh. numbers. But what they're saying is that, so the people that can leave Apple Valley then usually aren't the lowest kids. And so then what's left right. are the lowest kids. And so then how do you change the culture at Apple Valley if you're taking all of the wealthiest family-oriented kids out of there? And I get that argument, but to me, the my argument is you don't change and tell kids they can't come to Eastview. Because if you say they can't come to Eastview, they're going to go somewhere else. Right. They don't want to go to Apple Valley. They're not going to go to Apple Valley. Right. They might go to Lakeville. They might go here. They might go to private school. Change the culture of Apple Valley, which is what they're actually trying to do now, but they still might close open enrollment to try and make that change happen quicker. The culture through the lens of your teaching profession and your context. Hopeful? Do you like what you see? The teaching profession as a whole or just at my school? The, the, and not so much the teaching profession, but the, the, the children, the family, the culture. I think there's always hope. Otherwise, I don't think I would enjoy my job. Um, I just, it seems like more and more is being placed on teachers. And again, I don't think teaching should just be about teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of my goals is to, when a kid leaves my classroom, if they didn't learn a single thing about English, but they're a better person, I did something right. Mm-hmm. But we're getting to the point right now, even at Eastview, where there are so many issues kids are dealing with. We don't have the means to handle some of those situations. And that is where... I have the biggest probably struggles is how can we help a kid to reach their highest potential if they don't have everything in their life in place to actually get there right because the profession I have in Eastview it's a we call it a college ready school so we're constantly pushing kids to be ready for college Mm -hmm. some of the kids aren't going to be there some of the parents don't care sometimes we have issues where a kid is so anxiety-driven that they can't be in class. But I'm still giving them work to do. And then they're said, well, you don't. You can turn in work late. Well, if they turn in work late and it's two weeks later, well, what, what's happened in those last two weeks? More homework. 
So then they get moved, and so it just compiles, and then the anxiety gets worse. And so we we need to find some sort of shift to how can we address all of these issues because the school can't keep taking on all the responsibilities. We have kids with psychological disorders that in order for them to function, they need to figure out how to not be depressed and suicidal every moment of the day to function in the classroom. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have people saying, well, they need to be in the classroom to have normalcy in their life. How do we balance getting the kid help so they can actually learn in the classroom? Because at the same time, we don't want to just be babysitters. Right. Have a kid in here who's so depressed that half the time they're not going to be there. The other half, they're not going to do anything for you. And you reach out because you love them and you care about them. Mm-hmm. But what good are they doing in your class if they're not doing anything? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I have the most anxiety about is how can we get as a culture to realize schools are becoming way more than just teaching and how can we change them or find other ways to get these kids the help they need not all people are genetically designed for classroom education in previous generations this population dropped out and went to work today we force them to remain in an environment not designed for them We cannot go back to a former system. However, we need to start thinking about alternatives for those students to help them thrive in the 21st century world. So this is the pastor side of me. Judgmental and condemnable. I felt like in the the 90s and early 2000s that schools started wanting to take on all that responsibility. And they're hitting a point now that they realize we, we can't do it all. The kids that had that you know had some of those broken families, that family atmosphere they found at church, at the YMCA, at at other organizations, maybe scouts, um, provided that kind of anchoring for them away from there. And you you sit there and you see all those the YMCA isn't what it used to be. The, the church has a declining engagement. Yep. Um, scouts have a declining engagement. Um, and, and part of the reason that, for me, from looking at this, is um, for a long time, schools were demanding all of your time. You know? Yep. And it was, and that's, and, and it might be that, um, you know, um, backing off of, of, of Sunday activities or backing off of Wednesday night activities. Not not necessarily just for, for church, but for some of these organizations that are starting to encourage kids to get into organizations where they can find support. Uh, it's tough. I mean, I I graduated and had my 20th anniversary next year for 23 Union. I look at how different education is now than it was before, how hard it is for those kids now than the stress I had in my life. And kind of what you said is most of them don't have time for church anymore. The ones the one that do are great, but then what is that church adding to the fifteen other things they have going on? And there needs there needs to be a balance. And that goes to this whole issue of anxiety as well because 
all the stuff we're placing on them is causing all kinds of issues. So they all have one, especially in the basketball season. Soccer seems to be the worst in terms of year-round. Like I love soccer, but I'll have kids that will have practice from three to five after school. From there, they go home and have dinner, and then they have practice from eight to ten. Right. Where do you do homework? Do you homework ten to twelve? If right. you do homework, and then maybe get it done that time, then you're waking up at five o'clock, so you have five hours. So now you're sleep deprived. Right. Then you're going to do the same routine. Well, you sit there and you think about just, I mean, using that as an example. Um, well, one, a kid's logging a 14-hour workday sometimes. Sometimes more. And, and we think we don't see necessarily going to school as work or uh, we don't necessarily see soccer practice as work. But this isn't like laying around vegetation time. This is not no. like... Um, a downtime, a rest time, a break time, they're going, you know, some hockey practice does that start at uh, five in the morning, six in the morning. Get them there that day starts at four or five, you know. Yep. And uh, it's one of the things that I, I keep on thinking, even with churches, you know, churches are like, well, give them this to do, give them this to do. Oh, no, 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 no. They got enough. <laughs> they got enough. Just figure out what you're going to be your prime time and just, and, and, and maybe the thing you got to promote is, Sabbath kind of, or or um, how can we engage without demanding all of that time? And one thing that our ninth grade team has really moved to is giving a lot more work time in class. Right. One, because if a kid has a question, the best place to answer it is in class. Yeah. And so we have all kinds of work time now with very little homework. And then we'll have parents saying, well, how come my kid isn't having homework? We're trying to find, and schools have to find that balance. Right. In maybe it's giving up school sports. I would hate that because I think it can, we talked about it before, bring an entire school together. Mm-hmm. But if a kid has to do a school sport and a club sport and have a job and want to be in debate and go to school and do homework at home, something's got to give. Right. Club sports aren't going to give. Yeah. Work's not going to give. Right. Pretty much schools are the ones that are going to be... Well, and we're the ones that have to... And we have to. We have to find a shift to how much can we feasibly ask kids to do. And we... I would really like to see more research done with... They take A-Push, APUS history. Is having them read two hours a night actually making them learn more? So what is the cut... What's the tipping point to... Be productive for this amount of time, and then you lose productivity. So if they're not learning as much or minuscule amounts to that last half hour of homework, does it really make sense to give it to them? Right. And how can we find that balance? But you have to have a whole shift in educational yeah. philosophy. Yeah. This interview pushed me to create a sermon series I'd long been thinking of developing, called it Restoring Sabbath. Sabbath is one of the most recognized words in the Bible and one of the least understood concepts. On the first Sunday of the series, I read from the 31st chapter of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, 
you yourself are to speak to the Israelites. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. The words hurt our ears and our hearts. If you do not keep the Sabbath, you will die. But here is the brutal reality. Those words are true. If you do not rest, you will die. On July 18, 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush declared the 1990s the decade of the brain. That announcement sparked a surge in scientific research into how the brain operates and what it needs. One of the things we learned, the brain needs rest. It needs sleep. Lack of sleep compromises your immune system and makes us more likely to get sick. A lack of sleep increases our risk of Alzheimer's and anxiety. Adult women who get less than 7 hours of sleep on a regular basis increase their risk of dying by 21%. In males, this figure is 26%. As a result of the Industrial Revolution, we developed child labor laws. We never thought of putting these restrictions on a child's education. At the time, there was no need. However, today, children are often working 6-7 days a week and log 14-16 to hour workdays. Unfortunately, we don't see a child playing four full basketball games on a Saturday as work, but most physicians would. For the third straight year in a row, the average life expectancy of a U.S. citizen has decreased. It is not our older population that's dying earlier. There is an increase in the number of 20 and 30 year olds dying. The two leading causes of this? Drug addiction and suicide. Sabbath is not about doing church work, it is about rest and rhythm. Six days are for work, but the Sabbath is a solemn rest, holy for you. Let's start taking this command a little more seriously, not so people can be good, but so they might live and live abundantly. A lesson I was reminded of through a teacher's view of a classroom. That's our show. I want to thank Alex for sharing and thank you for listening. I want you to consider how can you start exploring Sabbath rest in your own life, a solemn rest, and then make it a sacred observance. My next interview will fit nicely into this one. I will talk to Patrice Salmeri, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor who holds a master's degree in human development. Patrice is traveling the country working with universities to develop programs which help students in addiction recovery get a college education in a life-giving way. Until then, check out the website OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to follow along. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Remember that those who support at least $10 a month for one year, that's $120, will receive a beautiful set of greeting cards. I also encourage you to check out rclworshipresources.com, where worship planning is made fun and easy. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation.